say the average Super Bowl has 145 plays, and then you times that by five seconds, and then divide by 60 is like 12. Yeah, so it, yeah, that totally makes sense. Hello, welcome to Hattrick. I am Jordan Tyler Coltman, joined by Elliot Tanti, and we are rejoined by Braden, who took a week off last week, but he's back and ready to go. Boys, uh, we were worried, Elliot, that the Super Bowl would be a bit of a stinker after such an amazing run of playoff games, and yet it came down to three points in the end. Uh, it did not disappoint. Before we get to the Super Bowl, we will talk Super Bowl. We're going to talk Oilers. We're going to talk coaching. We're going to talk Olympics a little bit. Before we get to all of that, um, I, I just wanted to lead off. Elliot, you gave us a, fun, a couple fun prop bets. Uh, this is not a prop bet, but I wanted to lead with this because it's a bit of a trivia question for both of you. There's like a three and a half hour broadcast for the Super Bowl, right? Something like that. And plus the pregame and then the postgame, whatever. It's like five hours of television. There's like $4 billion spent in advertising however many billion people watching it, right? I don't know how many Frito-Lays chips are bought. I'm sure it's a terrible day for poultry as more hot wings are probably consumed than any other day of the year. Um, All of those things combined though, can either of you tell me what the average number, what the average minute count for actual ball in play football is played during a Super Bowl? So not guys lining up waiting for a play to be called not just the clock running but actual ball from center to quarterback to receiver or wide receiver whistle ball in play football hmm. how many minutes on average does a super bowl have take a would guess would that include like kickoffs and punts and all that stuff i guess it would right so any, that's any, ball in any, play that's ball in, in play. Yeah. football yeah not the snap count, not any of that stuff. I mean, actual ball in play. Well, well, I think every play is probably on average five seconds and they probably run uh, 20, 40 plays a half. So five times 40, 200 minutes, 400 minutes or 400 seconds, divide that by 60. You didn't even use the calculator. Oh, now you are. Braden, do you want to just guess? Well, Elliot well, does calculus. I, I feel like this is a trick question. I want to say like Six all minutes. of the time that's allotted to the game, but obviously there's a good portion that is just waiting until the ball gets snapped. So and the clock's running, like right? Maybe. Yeah, that's right. Seven minutes. That's I don't know, maybe like, yeah, I'd say like just, just around 10. Braden, you're very close. It's 11 minutes on average. Is the actual football being played in a Super Bowl? All right, we'll leave that there. Realize, yeah. Let's go to top. Let's go to topic. (laughs) Okay, topic one today. Obviously, as mentioned and as teased, we are going to do the Super Bowl big game, the big game as they call it. The Los Angeles Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals went head to head uh, at SoFi Stadium in California. The commissioner called it the most beautiful stadium in the world. The Los Angeles Rams winning the Super Bowl 23-20. As I also said off the top, you know, we were worried, Elliot, a little bit last week that maybe it wouldn't live up to the hype of how great the playoffs had been thus far. We had all these tight nail-biter games, and this one didn't disappoint. It got right down to the end. It, You know, uh, the Rams went on a 15-play drive that just ate up 
you know, most of the fourth quarter just seemed like the Rams marching down the field, little piece, little nickel and dime plays to get themselves into a position to score. I think that up to that point, there had only been like three or four flags the entire game. And then there were four or five flags on just the end of that drive alone to set the Rams up on the one yard line. They, they tried a quarterback sneak that didn't get them anywhere. And then Cooper Cup making a great catch that gave uh, the Rams the lead. And then a, a, an awesome defensive stop by the Rams sealed the deal. And Cincinnati and Joe Burrow just couldn't, they just ran out of the opportunity to get back in it. Um, big, big game. They, the, you know, Cincinnati and, and, and the Rams were very evenly matched most of the ways, uh, most of the way through it, but yeah, the Rams winning it, uh, Elliot, I know, um, you know, you've been kind of designated as our resident NFL fan, uh, as you've been sort of more engaged with it all season long. How did the Super Bowl live up to your expectations? Uh, I mean, did it, I guess is the question. Oh, I think, I think you, if you're the NFL, you're very pleased tonight. I think uh, the game was outstanding. It was exciting. It caps off what's been an outstanding playoff uh, for the, the sport, uh, which we talked about last week. Um, outstanding halftime show. I mean, I, I think this, like, I, I really feel like the pregame was good. The postgame was good. Really, it's really difficult to find issue with anything either in-game or out-of-game with the Super Bowl this year. They did a great job and everything went on basically without a hitch and it was a great game. What more could you ask for? Uh, very enjoyable and uh, exactly what they, what the league wants. So good yeah. for them. Braden thoughts on well, the big game. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think the same, it was a, re- uh, you know, you want to see a really close game and that's what it was. There was, I think both defenses were, were the, the big talking point. Uh, I'm surprised that Aaron Donald wasn't the MVP. I mean, Cooper Cup had an amazing game and frankly, an amazing season, but Aaron Donald won them that game. I, I really think that that's the case. I think Joe Burrow had his sights set on at least tying that game up, did the rest of the Bengals, obviously, and, and they've proven that they could. Uh, just, yeah, just the, the fact that Aaron Donald made a huge uh, uh, stop on the fourth and one play shocked as I'm sure all Cincinnati fans are and the rest of football to see them in a shotgun formation on a fourth and one. But uh, there's a lot of intangibles that just led to, I mean, intangibles, that defense, that defense and namely Aaron Donald was, was a game changer and, and won them the Super Bowl. It's an amazing story. A lot of different really great storylines. If you're a Rams fan, you're excited that you won at home and you won with all of these. uh, I mean, they've got a stacked team. They've got a lot of really great stories. Stafford coming from Detroit and winning in his 15th season and his, you know, in his first time with the team. And then a story like, um, uh, Donald or, or Andrew Whitford, who's, or what's his name? Whit Whitworth or, something like that. He's like 40 years old and just this, Yeah, he, he looks like Santa Claus and he's still out there pounding the gridiron. So just, just a great, and if you're a Bengals fan, it's a heartbreaking loss. Not a lot of people thought that you guys would be there, but I think there's a, a really bright future for Cincinnati. Yeah. I mean, Joe Burrow's obviously among that crop of, uh, young 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 quarterbacks who have really taken over the league in the in the last couple of years um and now with the with the retirement of, of tom brady it's their league um and for all t- intents and purposes you know i'm thinking of obviously Mahomes and 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 um you know it just overall you've got these young guys joe burrow and um, murray yeah kyler murray in, in arizona and you've got um 
just, you know, an opportunity for some of these young players to really establish themselves. And after a really bad, uh, I mean, I can't, you can't really say it was a bad year, but unfortunate year for Joe Burrow last year where he was injured uh, and really sort of spoiled an opportunity to, to see what he could do. He comes out in his sophomore season and takes his team all the way to the, to the Super Bowl, and, and, you know, did a lot of the things he needed to do as a quarterback to, to put his team in a position to win. Unfortunately, they just, again, we talked about this, they came up against a juggernaut defense and a, and a really good defensive uh, stand to finish it out. You know, Aaron Donald said it at the end of the game, you know, they had, they had been struggling all, all game to sort of get momentum as a defense um, going and that, that they just happened to be able to, to shut them down on the most important drive. And sometimes that's what, Super Bowls and games come down to, you know, you don't need to be perfect the whole way through. If you're, if you're good in the moments when it counts, it, it can work out. I mean, and, and, and Los Angeles also, you know, had to overcome some adversity. I mean, losing Odell Beckham Jr. Early in that game was, was a challenge and you could see it. Stafford really had one passing option. And uh, even at the end of that 15 play drive, I, I mentioned off the top, when they got down into the red zone, you could tell he only was looking for Cooper cup because that's really the only guy he could oh, rely on. Yep. And Cooper made two big plays, obviously one drawing the penalty that probably uh, was a touchdown if he hadn't been hit in the face, but he makes an amazing play to seal it for him. Like that's a great catch in coverage uh, on a tricky little, on a tricky little kind of broken play for Stafford. But I mean, yeah, not not a gem of a game for the LA Rams. They've definitely had better better nights, but the truth is, it they don't ask how you did it. They just ask if you did, and they they are Super Bowl champions because of it. Yeah, I mean, I gotta jump in I, I, on the Cooper Cup stuff. I mean, I think I sort of at the end, beginning of the fourth quarter, I, I said to my mom, who I was watching it with, uh, and uh, Cup's having kind of a quiet game. <laughs> yeah, and sure yeah. enough. I think they threw they they he was involved in four back to back plays and and Jordan you know I fully appreciate the TD pass is great drawing the penalty is great uh, the play that won this game for the LA was the fourth and one wide receiver sweep that yeah, they put the ball in hands the game's done if they're out for them. they they don't get a yep. uh, first down in that play and I think what it speaks to for me though is something that you talked about last week Jordan and and you were right about this is going to come down to this could very well come down to a coaching battle and Sean McVay lost every weapon in his arsenal except for Cooper Cup and when the going was tough and they needed a touchdown he called four back-to-back plays to Cooper Cup in various different either run either running catch and run schemes or obviously the reversal that we talked about that's a coaching call that's a decision that you make in that moment put the ball in my best player's hands and it takes a lot of guts to do that because he's going to be in double, you know, everyone knows the ball is going to him and they did it anyway. And uh, just a gutsy sort of effort, I think from a coaching standpoint, can you imagine? They also lost players on the back end. Uh, Stafford was hurt at one moment. I mean, he, in terms of what they, he had to deal with as a coach, uh, I really, the decision to put the ball in Cooper cups hands maybe now seems obvious, but certainly yeah. at that time wasn't a for sure thing and hadn't been his option up until then. Right. Yeah. You know, the other thing that was uh, uh, just stood out to me was um, how many people lost bets after OBJ went down. <laughs> there was so much money on the line for, I think just specifically him and his stats uh, uh, just, I just cringed after that, but 
No, I'm with you. Just an exciting game. Really, really exciting. The whole presentation was really great. Halftime was awesome, you know, nostalgic, fun. It, it wasn't too crazy, but there was uh, a great energy around Hollywood and, and just putting that whole thing together. Well, and I think, you know, um, as, as we talked about this last week, Elliot, like the Super Bowl halftime show is very much a part of the entire experience. It's a cultural event. You know, it's like a, a pop culture event, but it, it, it is iconic. And there's so many iconic parts of it, obviously good and bad. Um, historically, obviously the Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake incident with nipple gator, whatever you want to call it, uh, is kind of infamous. Um, it's interesting. I was listening to a great podcast this week about sort of the history of advertising in the Super Bowl and and the Super Bowl halftime show is part of that obviously I mean everything in the Super Bowl is sponsored right you've got the coin toss has a sponsor and the bloody anthem oh has a sponsor God. and every yeah, piece of it has a sponsor but, it was nothing but bitcoin transferring I know. Well, the, to medication <laughs> let's get to... I, I want to get to that in a second just let me finish my point and then I do want to take a, a moment <laughs> to talk about advertising but or electric cars with the halftime geez. show what's interesting is you know the the history of those kind of things and how the NFL has become very had become very conservative after the whole Janet Jackson thing you know they they really blamed it on her and and I mean Justin Timberlake I think got away a little bit scot-free on how that whole situation unfolded historically but the NFL got very conservative very white um you know they went to old-time classic rock performances for I think the next half decade maybe Prince is mixed in there to be fair but it took a while for them to get comfortable again, kind of coming to newer, younger artists. And now we've seen that a few years in a row where we had sort of female pop stars, you know, you had Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and Beyonce and, um, and they kind of move in these things, but this is really a huge, I think an important moment culturally for the NFL, which is obviously as athletically a, a, a dominated, you know, black athlete dominated sport. Um, and yet culturally surrounding it, it is very white in how its presentation is. is. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was really cool. And I think really, I do, I do think that there's some, some credit that needs to be given to Pepsi and to the organizers and the, the producers um, to, to push for this and to get it done. I mean, obviously J- Jay-Z is a part, Rockefeller Records is a part of the um, producing team of the Super Bowl halftime show. They have been for a couple of years, but it's interesting because these are like older artists in the black, I mean, other than Kendrick Lamar. So there's like, there's a real sort of, like Braden said, there's a nostalgia element to it. There's this, this, this part of it, but it was interesting. Cause you know, like I think a lot of people w- w- were introduced to things that they weren't comfortable or aware of before with what this was, there's history there. There's all these different details of it, which is awesome. Um, and really, really cool. And the, you know, and also like, yes, these artists didn't get up there and, do a lot of controversial things, but I mean, Eminem did finish his song and took a knee, which is 100% uh, a tribute to Colin Kaepernick. This is on the NFL's biggest day and they didn't cut away from it. They made sure that that was seen there. You know, there is a little bit of that progress. I think that's good, Um, but I don't know. It was interesting. It it was definitely a big show. Um, It was challenging because it was a daytime show, right? So they couldn't do all of the like lighting effects and fancy pyro they sometimes do when they're on the east coast but i mean i enjoyed it i've watched it twice you know i had a good time watching it so i didn't think it was mixed well but that's a that's a technical detail <laughs> what do you mean dre was on the mixer the whole time no 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 i mean i don't think that the audio <laughs> the tv going to the the on Dr. Was very yeah, yeah what are you talking about <laughs> um anyway uh any well, any of you had thoughts on the halftime show i thought it was great i mean uh, yeah i thought it was Excellent. All right. Well, let's throw to our, our, our resident party pooper, Elliot. Yeah, I don't agree with you at all. I think this is like a half-assed throw to sort of like 
uh, inclusion. I don't think the NFL is, is, is well on its way to any sort of. I'm not saying that. I'm saying as a broadcast, it was as a broadcast. Yeah, I mean, sure. I, I, th- th- and look, there's, there's lots of nods. There's going to be people that are watching the game. They're going to see a nod to something that they, that they know a lot better than other people. Right. And, and, and fair enough. Uh, I think Eminem was asked not to take the knee. And That's a, it, yeah. Right? So that apparently has been rebuked. There was a report okay. that he had been asked to, and apparently the NFL has now come out and said, no, we were aware of it. It was done in every rehearsal. We All right. Okay. So. so they were fine with it. So, so, so I'll retract that, but I mean, they also cut a line from Kendall's Mar on or a song around police, or at least it was bleeped out. Uh, noticeably in Dr. Dre's song, it was included. The, the shot at the police in his song was included. Uh, but there's still a little bit of, of course, it's still the NFL. Too. So, no one's saying uh, that the I, NFL I, I, is woke. I know, and I and I don't I'm not suggest that you are too. But I think there will be people tomorrow that that will pro clutch and say, "Look, this is the NFL taking the next step into the into the 21st century." And, and I just, it's not. But no. I, I, but, I, but it's it, like credit where credits do, and I get that's what you're doing, and I know you're yeah. not going overboard and saying that or suggesting that. But you know that's what's going to come for, and you know every NFL exec and every owner is going to take a big you know, pat themselves on the back and say, you know, we've done sure. here and sure. overvalue this. Like, let's okay, let's- and that's all fair. But like, also, let's just take let's just take this in the context of like entertainment quality. Are you telling me this isn't a better halftime show than the weekend last year? Oh, just even like, in terms of like pr- production, production and scale and performer caliber and all of that. Nothing against the weekend, but that was like that felt clumsy and messy and kind of like this felt way more. Um, I mean, just conceived as a better idea and a more inv- innovative idea to have yeah. these artists, these guys together. Yes, you're right. Some of it's tokenism. There's no doubt about that. But so much of this is about tokenism. Yeah. Um, that's the, you know, the, the, the whole thing. You know, it's funny. I enjoyed The Rock's little pregame pump up. speech, oh, yeah. but It's a great nod to what the NFL desperately wishes it was, which is the scale and sort of uh like the xfl (laughs) well they kind of wish they were they had the ability to be the wwe sometimes in terms of the way they they hype themselves into being something so like so you know anyway um that's why they got the owner of the xfl we're we're in the weeds let me get to one other thing on our last podcast elliot went pretty hard at the olympics and more specifically on one topic i wanted to push back at because he, he he said the olympics were unwatchable due to commercials you cannot tell me after watching the Super Bowl, that that is equally almost unwatchable when it comes to the just the absolute onslaught of corporate greed oh that is being slapped in your face the entire game, you guys, whether you're you guys in a commercial don't. break or not. Yeah. You guys don't want to buy electric cars with your cryptocurrency? Well, I, I, I do now. <laughs> I do now, too. I want all the private medicine. You know, it was so interesting. Someone made a really good point on Twitter. I don't know. Who it, 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 uh, I should have got, it, got their name, but all these there was all these callbacks in the commercials to early 2000s, like pop culture and uh, and advertisements for crypto funds. And it's like it truly articulates for me a, a changing of the guard in terms of, oh, millennials are like the dominant sort of spender now. <laughs> so we oh, yeah. relate to them. And, and I think this is the first time I've seen from like a cultural standpoint, uh, you know, something that I felt was really targeted towards me. I was like, oh, I guess I'm part of a generation that has money now. Um, and so, so that to me was 
was interesting. Uh, but you know what frustrates me in the Canadian broadcast is we don't get the American commercials. So we just get like shitty Canadian ones that yeah. they'll, they'll intersperse some year there. But yeah, I'm telling it was weird. You, I was watching a, an NBC feed. Yeah, see, and I was watching, I was like the NBC feed, but CTV kept cutting in. And I'm oh, telling okay. you, when they sell the rights in Canada, they should be selling the entire broadcast, the entire package, yeah. commercials and all together. Because it, it's so infuriating for me that we have to watch these. And they're bad Canadian commercials over and over and over. There was one with a, a bunch of goats. Do you guys remember this one? Yes, that one was. Yeah, but, yeah, but like, what a missed opportunity. You're, you're Disney. I think it was Disney. Like, I, I know you have the money to bring in Tom Brady. He's on a boat somewhere in like Mallorca. So um, was the ad with a bunch of goats. All right. Okay, let's leave the advertising aside for a second. I want to touch on one more thing here before we leave this alone. Elliot, again, brought up prop bets, and I wanted to run down some of the fun results for some of these. Um, uh, we joked about the national anthem is always one that's timed. Uh, it was a big production for the national anthem. And this is the Star Spangled Banner, not America yeah. the Beautiful, the unofficial national anthem. Uh, it was a minute and 50 seconds uh, this time, which leads to an over. Uh, the estimate was 138, which I guess has become similar to the average. So if you bet the over, you're a winner today. The coin flip, which is a great one because it's literally a coin flip, yeah. <laughs> um, was plus 100 for heads which is strange to me but it was heads. Uh, but it's here's the more interesting thing about this this is two consecutive heads in a row and both teams that lost the coin flip won the game i need to say something about this in fact the to... losers of the coin flip have won the previous seven super bowls you do not want oh, to win wow. the coin toss okay but here's here's the here's the thing i don't understand you guys have to help me with this how and how how is la the visitors of this yeah, game no, no no especially with all of their fans in their yeah, yeah. it has nothing to do with that though no no no. It well, but it did at the that, very though. end of the game it did when that no, no, defense no, came out totally. and they started getting all of the hype yeah, yeah. that is that part's true court that's true advantage. too but the nfc and the afc that's predetermined ahead yeah, of time well before. it has nothing to do with whether or not you're the home team it and remember this is only the no second time in history that the home team has actually hosted the game last year the buccaneers did as well and i believe they were the away team for that home that that game as well well, they should change it it's a neutral field it just happens in, to be that yeah. they got the home field it's neutral yeah. because it's yeah. predetermined before any teams wink, make the playoffs right. it's a weird one for sure for sure but again it, it's only a new thing i mean now you can almost say it's an annual thing because it's happened back-to-back -back years and in back-to-back -back years they've won um elliot you and i had a we both took bets on the gatorade and not only did i win my pick for the super bowl winning team but I also called the Gatorade color. It was blue. Blue. You said blue. My dad won that one in the house too. I uh, I was uh, that was a good bet. Well done. What was yours, Braden, uh, Elliot? Elliot orange? went with water. Water oh. or clear? Yeah. Oh, like you the... thought they were all like full for ah. nutrition. Mm. Anyway. No, they need the sugar. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, any so last you took the Rams, Jordan. You took you took the Bengals, uh, Elliot. I yeah. was I was uh, early on. I was rooting for the Bengals, and then um, I was watching with a buddy who whose whose uncle was a huge Rams fan, and his uncle passed away two weeks ago. And so uh, the uh, we we quickly started rooting for the Rams, and 
Man, what a good I think that's a better story. No, well, it's so much better story. And here's the thing. If if the Bengals ended up winning, there would have been so much contention around that missed pass interference face mask call. Uh, well, okay. I, just, I, I wanted think- to speak to that, though, because I think sometimes karma happens in sports, right? So you have that missed call. It's clearly a missed call. Yeah, but then well, yeah. when they're when the Rams are pushing there in the red zone near the end of the game, there is a call against the Bengals for holding that was not holding. It was definitely a hand on back, but it wasn't holding. A couple of plays later, there was a holding call that they called pass interference because the ball was near. But earlier, Wilson got called for holding, and you could even hear both Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth kind of went, okay, I guess they called that holding. It wasn't, but you know, sometimes things work out in the end because uh, you got a missed call earlier, you get the big one later. Um, here's a couple last statistical facts for you. This is interesting. Joe Burrow just set an, a Super Bowl record for being sacked the most times uh, in a Super Bowl. So that's a fun one for the uh, yeah, young gun. They need some better offense to help that guy next year. And then Sean McVay is now the youngest head coach to win a Super Bowl, beating out Mike Tomlin, who had previously won with oh, the Steelers. Wow. Mike Tomlin won at 36 years old and 323 days. And Sean McVay is also 36 years old, but he's only 20 days. Wow. So he is the youngest Super Bowl winning coach in Super Bowl history. Last thoughts, Elliot, before we move on. Uh, just, I, I hope that this is a sign of things to come, that we've got, we finally got parity in the NFL, at least amongst the top teams. Wouldn't that be great if we had playoffs like this every year? Cause this is not always the case and I've been watching NFL long enough to know. So maybe we have some parity. Yeah. Well, it certainly lived up to the hype. It lived up to the, our expectations and it was a lot of fun. Um, and I guess now we wait and we see what, uh, what happens next year? Cause we're, we don't have any more football now for a little while. I mean, the NFL knows how to program an off season and we'll have lots to talk about through all of that. I'm sure. Um, I'll also give you just a little tease here that we are working diligently here at the podcast network towards next NFL season, perhaps having an NFL show. So we'll see how that develops. Um, this is not a Super Bowl ad, but it may or may not be a little ad for, for the network. Um, that's the Super Bowl. That is topic one. We'll leave it there. Hey, if you're a fan of Hattrick Sports, then I promise you, you are going to love the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Hattrick's very own Braden Dollar Coltman sits down every Wednesday with his best bud, Christian Steck. And together, they break down all the news, rumors, transactions from around the basketball world. Whether it's the NBA or college hoops, these two guys love talking basketball, and you are going to love listening every Wednesday on the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Let's leave football alone now for a little bit. We've spent a lot of time on it for the last couple of weeks, and obviously now it's the end of the season. Let's jump back into hockey, which we've neglected for a few weeks, uh, much to Braden's chagrin. Uh, the Edmonton Oilers and the Montreal Canadiens have new head coaches. Um, we can kind of pick them off one by one. Let's start with the Montreal Canadiens really quickly because I know we want to spend more time talking about uh, the Oilers. So Montreal obviously is just an absolute dog's breakfast of a hockey team right now. They are really struggling uh, coming off of, uh, you know, a uh, a Stanley Cup finals appearance last year. Um, But they have really just completely gone in the opposite direction and no, not helped by the fact that obviously Carey Price is going through what he's going through and Shea Weber, you know, injuries led him to retirement and, you know, they just kind of, it felt a bit like the magic that they had last year was a lot of overachieving and, and really good luck. And they just, it's all gone. It's all gone. They're a terrible hockey team again. And they find themselves in a situation where they ended up cleaning house. They fired their coaching staff. They ended up firing their entire front office. Um, they're under new management. Now we talked a little bit about that previously. I believe they've got a new 
general manager that I don't think we've had a chance to talk about this, you know, on the show specifically, Kent Hughes came in. Um, so someone from the outside to deal with. And then just over a week ago, they, they announced a very interesting choice for their head coach, uh, first time coach, um, but former NHL um, superstar Martin Saint-Louis um, is the new head coach um, of the Montreal Canadians who are obviously in a rebuild. They're probably in tank mode and preparing for what's next mode. Um, but they find themselves with a very inexperienced head coach who obviously will learn on the job. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, let's start there. Braden, when you heard Martin St. Louis was going to be the head coach of the Montreal Canadians, uh, your first thoughts were, uh, don't care. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, I don't really care. I mean, I think it's cool because Martin Stanley is an amazing hockey player. I have no idea what his abilities are as a head coach. I'm sure that he... I don't think he does either. Yeah, and so I think that's it's a test. You know, let's see how he can... Well, what they said is maybe he can weed out what's actually wrong, having been a player in a, a functioning room before. I, I mean... It's it's too bad because of the height that they fell from. I just think that this is a clear evidence of how impactful the likes of a Carey Price and a Shea Weber are on a team. Um, and and I mean, for him to continue on after the season, I think it. I think the odds are are not in his favor, but I mean, who knows? This is a great opportunity. You mean Martin Saint-Louis? No, no, no. They've, they've signed him for the, Oh, this is interim. No, he's been signed as the head coach moving forward. Well, good luck. That's Uh, that's, Elliot. That's what I have to say about that. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. There's not a lot of precedence for players coming in without having gone through like the normal coaching route through junior AHL and, and you're then, right there's not a lot of precedent in fact there's one was, yeah. yeah his name's Wayne Gretzky and it didn't go too well Phoenix no it did not so and I'm sorry so, Martin St. Louis was no Wayne Gretzky he was a great hockey player but he was no Wayne Gretzky well and and you know so you know I, I think yeah, what it doesn't matter what I'm saying is that <laughs> I, I I it just also doesn't feel like a uh, the long-term kind of thing. I mean, I think it's sort of, you need a French speaking uh, coach. Um, the team's not doing too well. Ken Hughes needed someone to just take over and, and you knew something was going to change when, when Ken Hughes was put into that role, every GM wants their own guy. You get at least one guy, if not two, if you're a GM, that's generally the rule. And uh, well, this that's we are where we are right now in terms of that with Montreal. I mean, I think that Braden's point is really astute. Like, it goes to show you how impactful uh, Carey Price and Shane Weber are on a, on that franchise and how much they've done for a long time. The Canadians are a mess. Bergevin's, Bergevin's departure was messy. I think um, they overperformed last year and went into this season with just unreal, like. Un, it wasn't sustainable under their current situation. Uh, and, and it is what it is. I mean, this is, these are the kinds of decisions you make when you're, when you're, you're going to give someone a shot and it doesn't really matter because it's, you're playing with house money anyway. Everyone knows it's a rebuild. Yeah. I mean, they are eight thirty three and seven. That's their yeah. record. They've they have allowed games. Uh, yeah. Well, they in regulation. Yes. Um, they, they have, allowed 90 goals more than they have scored. Yeah. That's almost a hundred goals more against like they are in. I, I mean, I don't, I wasn't exaggerating. They are horrible. Yeah. And 
And so, yeah, I mean, they are looking for a great lottery pick and, and hopefully oh, yeah. Shane to, Wright's gonna to be... figure out what's good. Let's yeah. um, let's leave them alone. The season, if, if I told you at the beginning of the season, a team was going to be eight and 33 and whatever their other number is, Seven, yeah. you would, you, you would have been hard pressed to say it was Montreal. Hey, eh? I mean, we all thought there was going to be a regression. Oh, yeah. I probably would have picked, picked Montreal or something. Right. Phoenix, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not Montreal. No, not just definitely. a friend you know, the only, the only connection I can find between Kent Hughes and Martin Saint-Louis is that their uh, children play uh, minor hockey together or junior hockey or something like that. Well, maybe that's where – maybe he coached them there. Oh, boy. I mean, the Arizona Coyotes have 12 wins, if that's anything. Yeah, they're looking really good right now. All right, let's jump to the Edmonton Oilers. Uh Another coaching change that we, I mean, we all kind of saw coming. It was, it was inevitable after what we had struggled with. I think the question is why didn't they just do this sooner? If you, I mean, it's one of those things, sometimes you, you kind of hope things will change. And I mean, it really does feel like from Ken Holland's perspective, he was just crossing his fingers and hoping for the best because there was nothing else. And there hasn't been anything else really he can do. Obviously they signed Evander Kane and, I mean, great. He scored in one goal. He's scored one goal so far. Like he, two, two, two goals. yeah, two goals. They're not going to, one player isn't going to fix what ails this team. So the hope now I think is that they can do some things system wise. They can do some things, you know, no new voice in the room kind of thing, you know? Um, and, and, and maybe that's true. So obviously Dave Tippett and um, Jim Playfair um, were relieved of their duties, uh, I believe on Thursday. Uh, and, they called up from the minors, uh, um, Dave Manson, uh, to take over the defense and Jay Woodcroft who returns to the Oilers bench. He was previously an assistant coach under, um, the previous regime. Um, he finds himself in his first head coaching job in the NHL, but obviously a huge contrast to a guy like Martin St. Louis. This is a guy who has really earned this opportunity. If you look at it from, you know, having worked all the way up from being a video coach with Detroit through being an assistant coach with both the San Jose um, and uh, San Jose Sharks and with the Edmonton Oilers under, under Todd McClelland, and then was given a great opportunity to go to Bakersfield, develop some young talent, you know, run a bench and all of that. Um, I, I guess starting there, you know, we, we got to see what he had, you know, uh, to offer as a coach, they win their first game. They certainly looked like they were out there playing for him. Um, there was a, a, a bit of the same kind of, you know, pride on the line that often happens when a team has a coach fired and they have to kind of go, okay, I guess we have to, you know, dig a little deeper and they, you know, they look good. It's one game. Um, Braden, how do you feel about uh, the new bench boss in Edmonton? You know, I, I was definitely in the camp of, of um, not wanting to see Dave Tippett go uh, for the longest time. I, I, you know, I was, I was worried that just another spinning wheel would come in and we would you know, be in the same cycle of, well, this isn't working. Let's try something else with a new coach. But I think, you know, uh, with, with uh, Ken Holland's philosophy around the, the change is going to come within the organization. I think that this was the, the perfect um, person to advance into this position. Um, you know, Jay Woodcroft, probably of anybody available, even the likes of a Paul Maurice, who would be an amazing coach for a team like this to come in having success with Bakersfield. This has been a, an AHL team that's been highly successful and that, and, you know, 
it's the kind of success everyone wants to see with the Oilers. And I mean, everyone, <laughs> but the, the fact that Jay Woodcroft knows this organization from the ground up is I think a really important thing. And the fact that he's been with, you know, Connor and Leon before he's even been with Evander in San Jose, he knows all of these guys in different kinds of ways. And, uh, I'm pretty sure he was with Evander. No, Evander Kane would have come in after Todd McClellan was gone. You think so? Yeah, hundred percent. He was with Winnipeg when uh, Todd McClellan and Jay Woodcroft were in Edmonton, I think. Yeah, I think my point still stands just in that, you know, we saw Broberg, Nima Linen, Tyler Benson getting an opportunity with Cassian out, um, you know, and I haven't seen that kind of spark from Tyler Benson before in, in the earlier games of the season that it's those kinds of things. I think, uh, I mean, they're playing to survive right now. And and I think Jay Woodcroft's going to do a great job. Uh, but again, like you said, one, it's one game and you got to start to see those, um, those changes become pattern and habit moving forward. Uh, the goaltending thing still, I mean, it's great to see Mike Smith bounce back after two really terrible games, uh, but that needs to be a consistent as well, or else they have to pull the trigger very quickly on, on, on making sure the, the beach ball doesn't get past our goaltending. Yeah, Elliot, uh, how do you feel about Jay Woodcroft being on the back? Yeah, I'm happy for him. Excited to see what he's going to do. It seems like he's kind of in a weird situation where it's like just till the end of the year and then we'll see. Of course, everyone remembers uh, is it Todd Nelson, the guy that yep, came yep, yep. the year and, and, and then and did a great job and then ended up not getting the head coaching job, uh, which, you know, was always was seemed kind of bewildering to me. You hope if, uh, if Woodcroft does a, a good job, you know, he'll be given um, – a little bit of a longer leash. I mean, I think it's been, I think my sense is um, I don't think Dave Tippett got a fair shake here. I think if you look at the entire body of his work from the time that he started at Edmonton to today, generally it's been pretty good. The problem I have is that throughout this entire year, the Edmonton Oilers have not played a Dave Tippett like system. And, and that set finally, you know, I think it finally came across to everyone that he had lost the room or the team wasn't responding to what he was putting down. Dave Tippett uh, coached teams, uh, you know, we used to see it all the time. They, he'd come in here with his shitty <laughs> Coyotes team and they'd play you hard and they'd grind you down. And, you know, the next thing you know, you were down 3-1 and it was there was 10 minutes left in the third period and you had no idea how, except for like Mike Smith, this crazy old guy, goalie had kind of kept you in it and then the game is done. And the Oilers, when they were at their best under Tippett, actually could do that. They just sort of won games. They, they, they played strong defensively. They had the firepower to get up one or two and then they could hold people off. That was good goaltending. This year, they've not played a Dave Tippett-like system. They've been inconsistent. Their defensive play has been absolutely atrocious. Like that's the only consistent thing is that their defense has been bad. It's just been a matter of whether they, their goalies can save them or they can outscore their mistakes throughout the year. And, and I think that that was a sign, a final sign to that, that this was not working and, and, uh, and a change was needed. But is Woodcroft going to have enough time to institute the defensive systems that Edmonton desperately needs? I mean, if this was the decision you're going to go, shouldn't you have made this decision two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago, when the team had fewer games, there was more opportunities to do actual coaching and hold practices? Like, this is the thing for me is, it, 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 I think on the whole, it's probably a fine decision based on where the team was and, and based on Woodcraft's record. But you're certainly not setting the guy up for success 
And I just worry about that, you know? No, totally. I think that's what the point I made earlier. I think that um, there was an opportunity with a longer runway to, to make this decision if you were inevitably going to make this decision anyway. And obviously hindsight is what it is. But, you know, we are where we are. Um, you know, I think there's 38 games left for the Oilers or something like that, maybe 37 now after Friday. So they have an opportunity to still do something um, significant with that that time. They're going to play a lot of hockey here to make up for the COVID missed games and a lot of back-to-backs. And they're going to need Mike Smith to be good. They're going to need whomever the other goalie that, that is healthy and ready to go. It, it needs to be good. We know there's going to be some injuries that's how this works. So the depth is important. Having some of the, the experience Jay Woodcroft does with some of those younger guys will be beneficial. Not because I think like a lot of the media wants to hype, Oh, he's got all these great relationships and he's going to give Benson a better chance. I don't think that's what it's about. What it's about is he knows what their strengths and weaknesses are and limitations are yeah, better yeah. than maybe Tippett would. And there's an opportunity for him to know where to push and where not to. I did think it was really interesting and really innovative uh, lineup wise, what he chose to do in his first game with an additional uh, defenseman and one less forward. We haven't seen that in the NHL uh, very much, if at all. Um, he talked in the post game about the reasons they were doing it in Bakersfield was more about necessity than actual creativity. But he sort of talked about the fact that sometimes, you know, when you're forced into a situation, you learn that you may have been missing something and, and he's found a lot of success with it. That would be an interesting thing to see the Oilers maybe try to do. I think they need to roll four lines more. I think they need to balance out their minutes a little bit better. Obviously Connor and Leon are going to drive this team as they should. Um, but you need to, you need to f- give some of these other guys who you're going to rely on for secondary scoring, actual opportunities to do that. I do think that that's a, uh, that was a bit of a, a, um, a challenge for Dave Tippett. He seemed to not have the confidence in some of his depth guys to give them the opportunity to work through the hiccups that they occasionally had. You know, a guy like Warren Fogle should be playing more minutes considering what you paid for him, um, what, what you clearly value him as. Um, and that goes for even some of the smaller players on this team, the Brandon Perlini's, the the Devon Shores, the, 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 the McLeods, the guys who we have seen flashes of really good opportunity offensively from. And sometimes you need to give those guys the opportunity to fail. Um, but, but in doing so also give them the opportunity to succeed. Um, and, and, and I know that the runway is, as Elliot said, not as long as it might have been um, a month ago, but it's still 37, 36, whatever games. Um, and there's still a lot of hockey that's going to be determining what, where we end up in the standings here as a hockey team. And I think that that's kind of where the focus needs to be. So, yeah. Um, any last thoughts, boys, before we wrap this up? I think there was something really important to see, like the, the, the two games they came out of the, after the all-star break was they were atrocious. Like they came out flat footed. There was no, uh, tape to tape passing like it was just they they looked out of whack and then against Chicago you know I think everything it was really like a make or break that you could either band together or you could be completely deflated which is what we ended up seeing once Duncan Keith went down with that just completely he was he was out cold like that and that's scary that's a scary thing to see to especially a veteran like that to have happen and then Cassian's injured the same and then your your coach is fired that that all in the all in one you know fell swoop and i think that that has to be the 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 very bottom it's got to be the bottom for this team i think i think you can only go up from here they they've got you know they've got a new coach that's going to make them work hard they've got some new changes that that are going to come down i i really liked seeing ryan mcleod on the penalty kill there was something that his speed was really helpful and 
they just they seemed a little bit more there was more fight uh once once Woodcroft was in that last game and just there's it's it's gotta be going up from here all right i think we'll leave it there that's topic two the ordinary podcasting network is excited to announce that we have launched a merch store on our website the store is full of ordinary swag including t-shirts hoodies and hats you can pick out something awesome and support your favorite podcast today by heading over to ordinarypodcasts.com. All right, let's uh, let's jump into topic three. Um, we're doing this one just specially for Elliot. Um, we talked last week about the Olympics. Elliot's very excited about the Olympics. He's been completely and utterly enthralled at the entire thing. Huge China fan, big fan of their politics. Um Braden didn't really get a say or uh, any input into his experience watching the Olympics this year round. So I'll lead with that. Um, Braden, have you been watching the Olympics? We're a week into it. Um, have you found it interesting or uh, captivating? Can you, can you um, manage to watch it with all the commercials or, or do you also find it unwatchable due to that? Yeah. And uh, what, if anything, have you found uh, interesting? About interesting. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been watching a little bit of the, the border board cross uh some skiing events um what else did i see i saw some uh what's the high jump fly jump what's the long jump what's the skiing jump uh, ski jump ski jumping yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Ski jumping <laughs> that's amazing uh um bit of controversy like with that though incredible bit of, luck really. bit of, bit of Just, controversy with the ski jump this year uh, that I'm not aware of because of how many commercials okay. there are. Um, uh, I was telling Elliot, I'm excited to see there's a Maltese snowboarder. Uh, there's Jamaican bobsledding, you know, so great to see some, um, some representation from countries we wouldn't see necessarily. Um, hard to watch the hockey. The women's hockey is really fun. The men's hockey, I just, I just, it makes me wish that the best players were out there. Um um yeah that's pretty that's pretty much it for my olympic take um uh, it's not it, it's not as captivating as i feel like it, it once uh was you know the one thing that really stood out to me too is how upsetting it is to see somebody like kaylee humphreys who was one of our our biggest um olympic winners as a canadian now representing america uh bobsledding for the american team um, I didn't realize that that would bother me as much as it does. Um, you know, I, I just, <clears throat> traitor, you know, it just doesn't feel right. I don't know if I'd go there. I think um, in the conversation we had last week with Alicia Rissling, you know, she pointed out a lot of the struggles that these athletes have gone through financially. And I think that there's definitely a backstory with Ms. Humphreys sure and how the, how the uh, organizing committee for the bobsled did or did not treat her very well, um, considering the attention that she as a, a very charismatic athlete gained for herself. Um, and I think that there was a lot of uh, politics at play, as there always is. And as Elliot has pointed out, does she have dual citizenship? Yeah, she, yes. she has American dual citizenship or? and he had an opportunity to, to compete with either team. And one team oh, gave why? her a bigger opportunity to, to, to do things her way. And gave her a bit more autonomy uh, as an individual, made made her uh, an opportunity to make a lot more money sponsorship-wise individually, make a living doing the sport instead of scrounging for every penny that she could in the Canadian side of it. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of factors. Then the team should just be sponsors instead of countries. Maybe, maybe. maybe. 
you know? Yeah. The whole system's kind of broken. Um, I do, I, I do want to know Elliot, if at any point through the last week you, you have found yourself um, interested or engaged in any part of it, or are you still where you were last week sort of detached and, and, and uninterested in it? Uh, no, I guess I watched some curling today with my mom, <laughs> which was more about playing with my mom before the Super Bowl. Uh but not felt particularly inclined nor made space for it at all. Uh, again, I know there are some interesting stories and stuff is happening. And I've been try- I've tried to sort of moderate my tone based on our conversation last week and the subsequent interview that you did. <laughs> but um, I just, I, my heart's not in it. And it's, it's kind of disappointing. It, it feels like I feel like about the Olympics, the way that you feel about CFL. That's fair. Yeah. That, that's baseball. probably true. Yeah. yeah. And baseball. Um, you know, I think here's, here's what I would say. I think that it's interesting because I think that um, here's my trigger warning for all of our listeners. I'm going to get political for a second. Um you know, I think when you look at the other things going on right now in this country and frankly around the world, um, but let's start in this country. And, you know, we, we're seeing a lot of polarization. We're seeing a lot of frustration and anger and emotion um, coming out in some uh, pretty, pretty bold and, uh, um, you know, you can choose whatever adjective you want ways. Uh, aggressive, uh, violent even, um, but definitely loud <laughs> ways. Um, it, I think it, 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 it makes me um, frustrated and also a little bit sad to think that what used to be a unifying thing in the Olympics, something where regardless of where you were politically um, in your own country, you were able to at least agree that supporting um, people who chose to wear, you know, your maple leaf on their shirt with pride, um, and did so out of, uh, you know, a calling to, um, achieve success at the highest levels of something they were passionate about, um, athletics and, 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 and representing their country, representing, um, the people that, you know, had got them to where they were, the people that had supported them and also the people who had come before them. I think that there, that is, that does feel like it has been lost a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, symbols like the flag that have become so polarizing, we're literally, you know, we have completely inverted um, what it, what, what, what patriotism, if it ever meant anything means. Um, And I, again, I said this on the last show and I do believe it. I mean, I think that I am someone who has gone on a very interesting journey with my own patriotism. You know, I'm someone who used to very proudly stand for the national anthem because it was something that had been sort of passed on to me through my grandfather and this idea of, um, you know, that's what you did. It it was a way to show solidarity with the people who, you know, had fought and died for our country and all of the things we're taught as kids about what our identity is as a nation. I think I've, I've grown and changed and learned a lot more about, you know, our country's history and some of the struggles our country has had and some of the things we have not done a very good, some of the stories we have not done a very good job telling. 
But what I think is frustrating or disappointing for me in this whole thing is that I think the Olympics has become very much the same thing where we've lost what it could have and maybe intended at one point to be, which was an opportunity for people to um, come together to show some form of, um, you know, global compatriotism um, as opposed to just nationalist patriotism, um, an opportunity for people to be united for a brief time. You know, wars have been stopped for the Olympics to, to take place. People have have literally, you know, um, you know, laid down centuries long uh, disagreements country to country over it. Now, has it always been clean and perfect? Of course not. You know, we've had murder, we've had terrorism, we've had all kinds of horrible things. That's, that's human. That's part of what this is. But I think it's sad to think that, you know, in such a short time from what the Vancouver Olympics even felt like to where we are today, we really do feel for me, at least like we've really lost a lot of people along the way. And we've also lost a lot of ourselves along the way. And I don't, I think I'm, I'm not sure I have a point other than, you know, the conversation we had last week, Elliot left me feeling kind of, kind of sad, kind of disappointed because I was like, what, what is it that, you know, what was it that I, that I find in it that I, that other people don't, and, and maybe I'm wrong to, to feel that way. And maybe I'm not, I know that when I turn on the TV and I see the Olympics on TV, and if there's a Canadian athlete there, I am always interested in who they are and why they're there and how they got there. Um, that's still true for me. I'm fascinated by that. I, my conversation last week with, with Alicia was very much the same thing. I was fascinated by her story, shocked a little bit about what it cost uh, her to, to, to do something like that. Um, you know, her talking about the fact that I think if, you know, she said at one point, if I had known I was going to have to spend, you know, 90 grand on a bobsled, I probably would have just quit right there. Um, and, and that's, that's interesting. But um, again, I'm not sure I'm making a point so much as just sort of spilling my, my feelings out, but um, yeah, I guess I'm just sad. I'm disappointed. I'm, 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 I'm sad. And, you know, I feel badly that the narrative of who we are has gotten so um, murky. I, I mean, I think part of this is this is a consequence of us having difficult conversations. There's consequences to difficult conversations, right? And I think, you know, that some of that is experiencing this, right? I don't know that there's a solution. Um, I think what you've said, everything, I would agree with everything that you've said. Um, but when you have the types of conversations that I think Canada needs to be having about its history, when you have the types of conversations that we've had about what the games absolutely actually represent in terms of uh, propaganda for evil people when you have conversations about um, the money and the corruption of these major international organizations that, that run these types of events uh, those are those are hard they, they have consequences and so I think we're all negotiating those consequences now in our own way and I mean what there's still another week you know, I might, you might find me back here in a week, much more engaged, you know, but we talk, we'll see. But I think that that's, you know, this, that that's how I feel is sometimes there's consequences to this. For sure. And I don't want to suggest that I'm sitting here trying to convince you to, to, no, to change no, the way you feel about it. Because I also think that like everything you shared last week and everything you shared this week, I think all of that's true. I feel very similar about it. I think that the Olympic movement has lost its way. I think the Olympic movement is, if it ever had it, uh, but the corruption has become much more overt than I think it used to be. Uh, and obviously, yeah, we've seen, we saw it in Sochi. We've seen it here in China that, you know, um, 
the 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 cost benefit or whatever certainly you know is out of balance and it's out of whack i i go back to what i said before which is you know i do believe we shouldn't be punishing the amateur athletes um for this i don't think it's their fault i think that the organizing bodies maybe have more responsibility and i don't just mean the organ the, the olympics i mean specifically you know like where is the canadian ioc on this or the, the canadian olympic committee on this where is the national committees um in terms of what their role is in this um where's the pushback where's the 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 sort of the the challenging of it as i also said i i'm optimistic that things like this aboriginal bid out of vancouver are a step forward i don't Mm -hmm. believe it's just tokenism i think that it's sincere and i think that that's really important and hopefully we can see more of that um I, i i am hopeful that you know the platforms that these athletes have can continue to grow because i believe if we go back to the athlete part of this, if we go back to the individuals in it, I think there's an opportunity there for change. Um, I would say that part, but I do think also like, you know, as much as I was saying a second ago that I think it's sad that we've kind of lost our passion for it because it was a unifying thing. I think the, the lack of unification is equally causing that dispassion. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's part of it. It's harder to feel proud to be Canadian today than it was in 2010, let's say, because as you say, you know, that narrative is a lot more complicated. And I think that that is a good thing in, yeah. in many ways. And, it, and, and I think it's also a bad, bad thing in some ways, you know, it's a mix of, it's a mix of things, right? It, it, I think yeah. it's just a reflection. It's honestly just a reflection of where we're at. And I think that we have, we have to be specifically Canada's history and, and culture, because I think that that's the biggest thing that the Olympics are beyond just, I mean, it's sport, it's culture, it's who we are and how we identify. I think that we have to recognize that that is where we are right now. And that, that is that the conversations and those kinds of things that are happening are leading us to a, a greater culture, a, a better identity uh, than, than we were at. We'll leave it there for tonight. Thank you both for joining uh, me, having a great conversation as always. Uh, and, um, you know, get ready because uh, we're going to have to start looking for new things to talk about because uh, the uh, NFL season is over. It has dominated the entire month of January and into February here. Um, so that's done. And uh, I know, Braden, um, you're waiting for the uh, three topic uh, power episode in the upcoming weeks about the strike in Major League Baseball. Um, we're still working on it. Some negotiations mm. hard into the night have been taking place uh, to bang out a deal on when and when, when and when, where we can have that conversation. Maybe we can but, get a federal mediator involved. Yeah, we might need a mediator to, to, to help us find an agreement on when we're going to talk about Major League Baseball because currently we're at loggerheads over it. Um, when, do, when do pitchers report next week, eh? Well, they, but they can't. Yeah, but you know. I think they're supposed to report. Yeah, either next week, the week after. March 23rd is first spring training. So we'll see. All right. They need some players first. All yeah. these teams need, they need players. They, need they haven't had first. a off season yet. Uh, that's our like show for this weeks. week. Oh, Elliot, you've uncracked it now. Now he wants to go into it. All right. That's our show for this week. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great night. That's Hattrick. Patrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. 
It's produced every week by Jordan Dyler Coleman and Braden Dyler Coleman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue, which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.